this. I think most of us sort of go to the old-time gospel hour, tent revival, evangelist, calling people down front, forgive your sins, victory in Jesus, amen, all done. That's not enough. For me, it's simply not enough. Forgiveness is not enough. If you think of it like a shattered glass, one that's fallen out of your hands and maybe come apart on the hard kitchen floor, it's great to say, oh, whoops, I broke the glass. Ah, forgiven, forget it, no big deal. But I don't want to be just left broken and forgiven. I want to be fixed. Forgiven is not enough if I'm not fixed. Think of it like a home, if you will. Here's another way to say it. Um, I was talking to someone recently, and anytime they start talking about fixing things, I listen because I don't know anything about it. I don't understand half of what they're saying, but I try. And he's talking about replacing a light fixture. I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, I've done that. And what happens is, oftentimes you start with, a, you see a light bulb flickering or going out, and I was like, okay, there's a problem, replace a bulb. Get a new bulb, put it in, doesn't work. Wow, oh, what's the problem here? That's a little weird. So you talk to the person in Home Depot, because they're free, right? And say, hey, what's going on? Oh, I don't know, but you could switch your fixture. Use one of these new LED things, and you put one of those in, and it'll last you the rest of your life, and you won't ever have to bother with it again. That sounds pretty good. In fact, it even looks better than what I used to have. It's more energy efficient. I never have to fix it again. And it looks better. Now that's a fix. So you pull it off, turn off the power, twist a few wires, put on, boom, wow, light. It's beautiful. Now that is what I call a fix. It's more long-lasting. It's cheaper. It's more pretty. It's more efficient. It's better all around. When I think about myself and my sin and the way I've been impacted by it, that's really what I want. I don't want to just be shattered and laying on the floor or replaced with the same old thing. Instead, what I want is a complete remodel, a total restoration. I want the whole kitchen ripped out, the old cheap counters pulled out, the rotten cabinets and brand new stuff pulled in, granite, stainless steel, the works. I want to be new. I want to be fixed. I'm going to be so fixed that I'm never, ever, ever broken again. For you deep theologians, here's your extra credit, 10 cents extra. Augustine says it like this. The four stages of humanity uh, move, basically, I'll give it from the garden to after the first sin to after Jesus to heaven look like this. Originally, Human beings in the garden were able to sin. Then, after they sinned, they were unable to not sin. Then, after Jesus, they were able to not sin. But then, after Jesus returns, they will be unable to ever sin again. So, it goes from like, can sin to cannot not sin to cannot sin to can never sin again. <laughs> That's where I want to be in that last square, in that last triangle. I want to be fixed. I don't want to be broken. I want to be free from 
the guilt of sin, here's a slide, we're going to skip one, one forward. Uh, I want to be free from the guilt of sin, that's forgiveness, that's victory in Jesus, but I want the whole package. I don't want just the forgiveness. I want to be free from the very presence of sin. I want to be perfect. I don't want to even be tempted. I want to get to the point where the effects of sin, what people have done, what I have done, what the world has experienced, is completely removed such that we live in utter and eternal bliss. I want to be free from the guilt, the presence, the effects, all of it. I want the whole thing, man. When I talk about victory in Jesus, I'm not just saying come forward on a Sunday morning and be forgiven. I'm saying in the future, in eternity, be fixed. Be forever whole. What you've always longed for all the time. The best feeling ever all the time. That's what we want. I groan for this. I long for this. I desire it. And it's not only me, but the Bible tells me all of creation is the same way. Look at Romans chapter 8. And we'll come back to Romans chapter 8 in a little bit. So you watch how this works. Romans chapter 8. This is the first slide. It says, the whole of creation has been groaning together until now. And not only all of creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have experienced salvation, the forgiveness of sins. We groan inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption as sons, the whole package, the redemption of even our bodies. You want victory in Jesus? Yes. By all means, I want victory in Jesus. Not just what he did in the past, but what he's going to do in the future too. I want victory. I am hoping not just on a historical event, but on a present hope and a future guarantee of Christ's triumphant return, his eternal kingdom, here's a slide, and the reward of his saints. I'm hoping for all of these. Forgiveness of sins, yes, that happened. Yes, it's great, it's wonderful. But I want to see the king come back. I want to see him come riding down with the saints and his angels in glory and fix all of the mess that we've made. I want to be rewarded for actually working hard. And that's okay. <laughs> Jesus talks about rewards all the time. Great is your reward in heaven. If you're detached from this earth and you're investing in heaven, then your reward is yet to be, and it's okay to want that. In fact, you should desire that, long for it. I'm after all of those things. I want you to see that the victory in Jesus is not just something we have in the past, but it's something we hope on the present and we're guaranteed in the future. And this is, in fact, the way salvation is portrayed in the Bible. Salvation is not just the forgiveness of sins. Salvation is the eternal fix. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 26 and 28. Watch what happens here. The first verse, verse 26, is the first half of salvation, the forgiveness of sins. The first, what we call advent. Advent just means coming. It's an old Latin word, the coming. So this is the coming season. We celebrate the first coming. But we're looking forward to the second coming. That's really where our great hope lies. So watch how these, like two sides of the coin, are packaged together. When the biblical writers speak of salvation, when they talk about victory in Jesus, they don't just talk about forgiveness of sins. They include the second coming as well. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. It says this, But as it is, he, that's Jesus, has appeared once for all 
at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. Now we can be saved. Now verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that's what he did, will appear a second time. And not to deal with sin, because he already did that, but instead to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's me! Is that you? I hope so. Not sitting there lethargic, cold, mute on our couch. We're excited. We're looking out the window. We're waiting for dad to come home. When's it going to be? I don't know. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow, but soon. Both. It's one package. The first advent and the second. Let us never celebrate the first advent again without remembering the second. You want victory in Jesus? Where do you get it? In both. First and the second. Here's a quote by a theologian who you may or may not agree with in everything, but this is an awesome quote. It says this, Faith in Jesus without the expectation of his, and this is a word for kingdom, parousia, is a check that is never cashed, a promise that is not made in earth. A faith in Christ without the expectation of his kingdom is like a flight of stairs that lead to nowhere but ends in the void. Without the coming of the Lord in glory, the new life remains in concealment and there is no consummation for the unredeemed world. All that groaning is in vain. What we want is the redemption of our bodies, the new heavens and the new earth. I remember the first advent, but I'm really looking forward to the second. That is victory in Jesus. That's the theme I hope you'll hear throughout this entire sermon series is our great hope, our future uh, experience, the kingdom, the king, the coming of Christ, the good stuff that that'll bring. That's a real Christmas present. And for this reason, then, I'm starting the series from Isaiah chapter 40, which is actually interesting because this is before the first advent. I'm emphasizing the second. This is before the first advent, but it's interesting because the message to Israel and to the message to the church are nearly exactly the same. They're different circumstances, different people group, different covenant, but once you put those things in context and step out of that, the message or application to the people is the same. So, Watch how this works then in Isaiah chapter 40. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to follow along. Isaiah is a big, beautiful book near the middle of the Bible. And this is chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. And I'll just read the first five verses. They're probably ones you're familiar with, and they're very poetic and memorable and beautiful. But today my hope is that you will understand them in their original context in a much greater way, and as a result, put on so much more depth and meaning to your understanding and application of these that it deeply impacts your life. It's Isaiah chapter 40. It says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. 
voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Comfort, comfort my people. What a message this is. What a message this must have been. At this time, to us, it's significant because we see all kinds of political turmoil and upheaval throughout the world and there's strong opinions and strong feelings everywhere. But to Isaiah's people, it went even beyond the feelings and the thoughts and the politics to actual warfare. All the feelings, all the hatred, all the racism, all the animosity, all the greed, all the bad stuff was there in addition to being attacked and nearly starving. What happened is this, and it's only in the strange, mysterious, infinite power of Almighty, all-wise God. When God chose a place for His people, basically He chose the worst possible spot He could. You always thought it was the promised land, right? It's flowing with milk and honey and all this other stuff. It also happens to be surrounded by a bunch of people that want to kill them. (laughs) From day one, going into the land of Canaan, they have enemies on every side. Even at the height of the Davidic kingdom, even when Israel was in its greatest, most powerful state ever, David, King David, was surrounded by Philistines to the east, Moabites and Ammonites to the west, Syrians to the north, and Edomites to the south. God intentionally chose the most difficult spot in the entire world and said, go there. (laughs) How would you like to do that? Abraham, here. You were nice and comfortable over here in Ur where no one was bothering you and you had all your family, and it was good. We want you to go over here where you'll be surrounded by people who hate you. Not only people who hate you, but they want to kill you. So much so that even today you'll hear the chief leaders of some of these countries say this people should be obliterated from the face of the earth. (laughs) They hate them. They want to kill them all. And you've seen it attempted. (laughs) World War II, for example. They are surrounded by everyone who hates them. And you watch this historical movement of attack after attack after attack. And what happens is there's this little land bridge between the east and the west on the uh, east side of the Mediterranean Sea that if you're going anywhere, basically you have to pass through. So if you want to conquer the world, you're going to go through here and you're going to make sure you contain that corridor so that you can control traffic, you can get the tolls, you can do whatever you want to do, but you know who's coming and going. That's your spot. So when it's Egypt, yeah, they're going to go reach out and smack the Israelites. When it's Assyria, yeah, they're going to reach out and smack the Israelites. When it's Babylon, Greece, Rome, whoever it is, you've got to control this spot. As a result, these people live under this slide, the constant experience of warfare as an inescapable part of their national existence. They pretty much know that they are always, forever, 
going to be under attack. Unless they conquer the entire world, which only the Messiah can do, they're going to be under attack. Why do you think they wanted Jesus to bring the kingdom so bad? (laughs) They have to conquer the world, otherwise everyone's just trying to kill them. Their very existence was dependent upon their ability to fight back. And so at the time of Isaiah's writing, what's happening is this. The kingdom has been split. It used to be one under David and Solomon. Well, shortly thereafter, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, raises taxes. No one likes that. They break apart. And then, as a result, there's this sort of north-south rivalry going on. Most of the time, the northern kingdom, they're doing the wrong thing, and the southern kingdom's doing pretty well. Sometimes, the southern kingdom's worshiping idols, too. And so what you watch is, is this, um, basically, God is sending prophets and saying to these people, repent, 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 come on, make straight a path. The idea is, clear the way to your hearts, let God come in, open up. And they do okay, and then they go back and forth and back and forth, but then in 722 B.C., Eventually, they're so hardened that God says, all right, I'm done. He sends the Assyrians in. They conquer the north. And the Assyrians are greedy, and they're going after the south. But good king Hezekiah sort of holding out and saying, no, 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 I'm not going to give in. Dear God, please help, please help. God's like, okay, that's what I wanted, actually, from the very beginning. But I want to tell you something, Isaiah. It's not the Assyrians. It's actually the Babylonians that's going to get you. (laughs) I'll give you a few more years. But in the end, this people is going to forsake me and I'm going to punish them. I won't forsake them. That's why, by the way, you look at the start of this passage. It says, comfort, comfort who? Who's it comforting? My people. (laughs) If God had rejected them, it's no longer his people. He's still holding on to them. This is my people. I haven't let them go. This is my people. So here's the prophet, and he's coming. Verse one, chapters 1 through 39 are about judgment, doom, and despair. It's revealing to the people, hey, guess what? It's not actually going to be the Assyrians. It's the Babylonians. <laughs> the Assyrians just conquered your neighbors to the north. They're surrounding your towns. They're trying to kill you. There's something worse coming. Comfort. Comfort. Huh? What? We're surrounded. We're suffering. Where is the comfort? comfort there, God. Verse 2, it's even crazier. Verse 2 says this, it says, (laughs) speak tenderly to Jerusalem that her warfare has ended. What? Hasn't ended. Nowhere close. In fact, we got another 170 years to go (laughs) before they return from exile. 722 is when northern kingdom falls. Southern kingdom doesn't fall until 586. Then they're exported for 70 years. It's a long time till their warfare has ended. What are you talking about? This is the prophet. He's not necessarily looking at the moment, but he's looking to the future. He's not saying, hey, these are your present circumstances. You already know what those are. Let me tell, what's com- Let me tell you what's coming down the pipe. Here's the future. 170 years from now, Your warfare will end. Your iniquity will be pardoned. Your day is coming, and it'll be done. How can the prophet say this? How in the world can he make such promises? Well, he's a prophet, right? Let me show you something else. Interestingly enough, 
this word, this Hebrew word, word nacham, comfort, it comes from a word which originally meant to breathe deep. It's like when you're crying, you know, and then you get to the spot, and you're like, right? You know that spot. It's either coming or it's just about done. Guys are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Stop there. Hold on. Here's a tissue. Too late. It's coming. Is that deep breath. And it can mean a lot of things, you know. It can be you're out of breath, it's exhausted, it's tired, you're sad. But in the Bible, you find it basically translated two different ways. And number one is for comfort. Number two is for repentance. For repentance. Well, that's an interesting insight. Repentance, how does that work? Well, look at verse Three, here's what's very interesting. I think you've heard this before. Perhaps at the start of a new character, right before a very important character in the New Testament. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Who was that? Church? John the Baptist. And what was he telling their leaders to do? What? Repent. Yeah, repent. John the Baptist was calling on those whitewashed tombs to repent. Wait a minute, what did Naham mean? Comfort or repent, right? How then do we get comfort? Repent. Repent. You want to know how to be comforted? Repent. Yeah, but this is something someone else did to me. I'm not saying you repent for what they did. This is circumstances in my life. I'm not talking about circumstances in your life. Prophet wasn't talking about circumstances in your life. He's talking about 170 years from now. How do you want to know to get comfort? Repent. Naham. Speak tenderly. Make straight a path to your heart. How can you be comforted? You repent. The prophet's call to comfort. This is called a repentance. And in fact, if you've ever done this, I know it's hard and I know it's rare and it's difficult for me, I promise. But you realize that repentance actually brings comfort. When you say, I'm sorry, you feel better. When you own up, you take the load off. You try to get around it, you try to ignore it because you don't want the axe to come down on you for something you don't deserve. But when you finally come to the point and you say, yeah, I own that, I did that, that was my fault, man, you feel better. You're relieved. You don't know how that other person or other entity or other group is going to react. You can't control that. It's got nothing to do with you, and they may go off the deep end. That's fine. Point is, is you feel better. You get the comfort because you repented. How should you be comforted? Make Straight a path to your heart. Repent. What's really cool is you follow this pattern throughout the Bible and you'll see it over and over again. What you see essentially is this, is God begins with a promise. It's nearly always how he deals with his people. He just starts with a promise. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. David, I'm going to give you a descendant. So church, I'm going to do this. He starts with a blessing. 
And that's why our religion starts with faith, is because you have to believe those things, because what you see is not the same as what that promise is. What you see is the warfare that you're surrounded by, all right? <laughs> you are surrounded just like Israel, only it's not physical, it's spiritual. And the New Testament makes that very clear to you, that our existence, the inescapable reality, is bound by fighting. We wrestle not against powers and principality, but all these, you know, flesh and blood, you know how that thing goes in Ephesians. We're fighting against hell itself. And you know that because you feel that and you walk into a room and that dark cloud hangs right over you and you know those feelings are not from above. <laughs> that's not where that's coming from. You are wrestling inside more than ever before and that's because you are surrounded by warfare. And I think, even though I'm not a prophet, just reading what he says, I'm pretty much saying the same thing. He speaks to people who are surrounded by fighting. I speak to people who are surrounded by fighting. Yours may not be people coming over the walls and trying to kill you. There's people trying to get into your heart and your mind and let you do it for yourself. Suicide, depression, higher now than ever before. Ever. Quantitatively proven. What's going on? We need comfort. We need a prophetic voice to speak into our lives and say, there is hope. Where do I get hope? Well, first of all, I've got to believe the promise because it's not what I see, so it begins with faith. My current existence doesn't match the reality of what I'm looking forward to. Victory in Jesus is not all here yet. I still hurt. I still suffer. I still sin. I'm not there. So what do I do? Well, I believe that someday we will be, and I repent of the present, so I believe in God's promises. Here's a slide. How do you get comfort, number one? Here's a formula. You believe in God's promises. You've got to believe. It's faith. That's why it's all by grace through faith. You've got to start there by faith. Believe. Then, after you believe, you repent. Ask God to forgive you for your sins. Now you're on the path to comfort. You've taken off your load. You've taken off your burden. You don't have to carry anything. Now you look to the future for hope because God has promised you this and you're believing in it and you're just waiting for it to come. Now it's coming and you're all set. This is a good place to be. Believing, repenting, and hoping. This fills the gap of our everyday experience between what I believe and what I see. Because <laughs> I know what I believe, but what I see is this. So how do we get there? Like this. Believe the promises, repent of your sins, hope for the future. And then, when you do that, then you experience God's salvation, and eventually you will see His glory. That's how it works. You've got to believe it and do it now by faith to realize it in the future. You think I'm crazy? Perhaps, perhaps not. But here's how it worked in the Old Testament. First Advent, they're looking forward to the promises of the Messiah. So they're repent. So that's their belief. The Messiah will come. They're repenting through their sacrificial system. This is what they are, in effect, repenting through. And they're looking forward to the hope of the future Messiah. Same thing. That's what they did in the Old Testament. New Testament, we have the past promises of Christ that we believe, but we have the present repentance through Jesus in our heart, and we have the future of, just like them, the returning Messiah. So it's all the same. Believe the promises, repent of your sins, 
hope for the future, experience salvation, and see God's glory. Here's a slide. I think I just said it pretty fast, but the biblical pattern looks like this. Believe, repent, hope, experience, see. That is how you get comfort. Write that down. Memorize it. Do it. Go back to the slides and download them. This is how we get comfort each and every day of our life. It's hard. I, I study this all week long, and I come to it at the end of the week, and I go, oh, <laughs> there it is. I got to talk about it on Sunday. Whew. Then I got to do it on Monday. <laughs> That's the hard part. Don't forget last week's sermon and just work for the next. Try doing this one first. It's hard. <laughs> Believe, repent, hope, experience, see. This is how salvation works. Well, let me show you that pattern again in Isaiah chapter 40 since that's our text for today. Remember the first few words were comfort, comfort. There's the repent. Then speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry out to her that her warfare is ended. That's a past tense. That her iniquity is pardoned. That she is received. A voice cries in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Then after you do that, what happens? Verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God's word is true. It's not based on you, what you do, but because God said it. And because God said it, we believe it. And because God said it, it happened. Starts this way at the very beginning. God spoke and there it was. <laughs> Land, sea, earth, air, people. God said it did. God said this is what will happen. It will. So Israel gets all these beautiful promises about her warfare being ended and her iniquity being pardoned. They're all in the past tense. And I imagine if I were sitting there under their circumstances with my northern neighbor gone and myself surrounded, I'm scratching my head saying, Lord, what are you doing? <laughs> I mean, you just said it's over and it doesn't look over to me, <laughs> right? What's happening is the prophet is doing something that prophets do, which is really cool. They take a telescope and they look down through time and they sort of leapfrog over events. It's called telescoping. And they see... They can see something that's happening in the past, something that's happening now, and something that's happened thousands of years of the future and just sandwich them all in one sentence. <laughs> you go, whoa, that was pretty wild. And Isaiah's doing this, and he uses these past tenses, which are called uh, prophetic perfects. Perfect's just a tense, and all it means is like a past, kind of, not exactly. And he, what he does is he sees things in the future that haven't happened yet as accomplished already. This future event that has not happened, Isaiah is saying it's already done. Now, you may think I'm getting grammarian here, but this is huge. This is big for your faith. I don't know what grammarian means either. I am just came up with that. Going grammar on you. Booyah. Look, prophetic future means this event has not happened. But the prophet says that it has because he has such faith or confidence in God that he knows what the Lord has spoken will. 
So these Old Testament people, they've got all these prophetic perfects, these past tense that haven't happened yet. And it's funny what happens is, just by the way, liberal scholars and theologians that don't believe in the power of God or prophecy will look at this and say, oh, this had to have been written after Cyrus because there's no way a prophet could have known that. Love it. It's great. I wonder if there will be liberals after Jesus comes back, right? There's no way he could have. I'm telling you, three days and three nights, and then I'm, he did that to his disciples so many times. When are we going to get it? So here's the thing. Israel had prophetic perfects. Do we have prophetic perfects? I think so. Remember when I said Romans 8 will come back again? It's this verse that we all like. Let me show you something. Verse 28, we love this verse, but it doesn't mean you're getting a new car for Christmas. Just because you got in a car accident, that's not what it means. A little bigger than that. Romans 8, 28 says this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Amen. For those who are called, there's a past tense according to his purpose. Now watch as it goes on. For those whom he foreknew, that's a long time ago, he also predestined, way back when, to be conformed. That's what's happening right now. You're being conformed. Even though it's in the past tense, that's what's happening right now. To the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's Jesus. And those whom he predestined in the past, so that's done. He also called, done. And those whom he called, he justified. That's that forgiveness when you believe in Jesus. Now look at this. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. You're glorified. (laughs) Do you believe that? I don't know. My back kind of (laughs) hurts. Why do you think I have to use this stool? (laughs) Standing here all day doesn't work for me. All of a sudden, my hamstrings lock up, and I'm done. I can't make it out of my car when I get home. (laughs) My foot hurts. Lots of things hurts. I sin. I get mad. I get upset. I get impatient. I need restored. I don't want to be shattered and broken just laying on the ground. I want to be a beautiful vase that's way better than I ever was. I want to be like that house But LED lights, what are they going to last? 120 years? I want it to last forever. I want a complete makeover. I want to be glorified. Wait, wait, wait. It just said I was. How does this happen? Right now, I'm surrounded. Right? I'm being attacked. I'm suffering. I need comfort. You're glorified. Your warfare is ended. Your iniquity is pardoned. You've already received double for your sins. Romans 8, 28, Isaiah 40. Same message, different people group. The deal is, church, your fight is done. It's over. Yeah, we're living in the middle of it right now, and it feels like it. I don't deny your feelings. They're real. I'm crying too. It hurts. But the reality of the prophet, the reality of the priest, the reality of the king, Jesus, says, done. It's finished. It's over. The fight's over. We won. That's it. Victory in Jesus. Amen? You've got to believe God's promises. You've got to repent of your sins. You've got to hope for the future.
Then you'll experience salvation and see God's glory. Your warfare has ended. I know you experience it. I do too, and it hurts, and it's real, and I'm not denying that. But I'm just telling you there's hope. I'm telling you there's hope. Comfort. Comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Midland. Your warfare has ended. Your iniquity is pardoned. Hey, listen to this. He who began a good work in you, he'll be faithful to complete it. The trumpet will sound. With a shout, he'll come back. Second advent. And every knee will bow. And look, Isaiah was right. (laughs) How about that? Here's the prophet once again. He swallows up death forever. Oh, I know this verse. The Lord will wipe away every tear from all faces. The reproach of his people, the reproach of this planet, all the groaning, it's done. For he will take it away from all the earth. Why? For the Lord has spoken. Oh yeah. That's good stuff. Confidence, hope, comfort comes not from the sinlessness of the people. So glad. But from the faithfulness of Almighty God who fulfills his prophetic word. The Lord has spoken. It is finished. All is well. Victory in Jesus. Father, we thank you. You did it. It's perfect. It's done. It's over. It's all done. Here I am worried. (laughs) Fretting. Frowning. You won. Why would I ever despair? Lord Jesus, thank you for your promises to come back. We pray that you'd come back soon. I am weak. I need restored. I am broken. I need fixed. But I believe by faith, through the power of your grace, the work of your Holy Spirit, that you will get it done. So you are faithful, and you have spoken. Amen.